It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. If you're in the DFW area on September 22nd, 2022 and September 23rd, 2022, I'll be joined by my dear friends Eric from True Consequences and Whitney and Melissa from Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet for True Crime Live. Click on the link in our show notes to buy your tickets. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases with Lainey. In the Christian Bible, the last five of the Ten Commandments are Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. For far too many religious leaders, things go downhill when they break the Tenth Commandment by coveting a female member of their church, and all too frequently, this leads to adultery. Surprisingly, more often than many people realize, a pastor, minister, or preacher who commits adultery feels compelled to kill either their spouse or their lover spouse. For these men, it seems like their faith isn't quite as strong as they would like those around them to think. We've discussed situations of this in the past. You can just refer to our previous episodes called Murderous Ministers, and on today's episode, we have more tales of those murderous ministers. Okay, on to the show. On October 17, 2011, a 911 call was placed from a home in Scarborough, Toronto. The mail caller calmly answered questions about the address and phone number, but when the 911 operator asked what had happened, he became frantic and emotional. The caller, later identified as Philip Grandine, cried that he was out running when he came home to find his wife, Carissa, 
submerged in the bathtub and not breathing. The 911 operator told him to get his wife out of the tub, so he tried. For several minutes, he could be heard as he tried to get her out of the bath. He repeatedly exclaimed, I can't, I can't. He also could be heard saying, She's so heavy, she's nine months pregnant. Toronto Ambulance, where do you need us? 12 Marsh Road. Sorry, 12 Marsh Road? 12 Marsh Road. And what is the closest major intersection? It's Birchmount and St. Clair or Birchmount and Danforth Road. Okay, and is this a house or an apartment? It's a house. What's the telephone number you're calling from? 647-8827-9258. Okay, so tell me exactly what's happened. I just came home, and I was out running, and my wife was taking a bath, and when I came home, she's in the bath, but she's under the water, and she's not breathing. Okay, sir, did you remove the water from the bathtub? No, I haven't. Okay, t take the moment to do that now, okay? <laughs> Okay, okay. Okay, how old is she, sir? She's 29. She's 29? Okay, is she breathing at all? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Are you able to get her out of the bathtub? I probably can. Okay, Ray, this is going to be a difficult yep. here. Do you want me to do that now? Yes, I want you to do that now. Get her out, put her on the floor, flat on her back. Okay? I know how to do CPR. Okay, well, I'm going to guide you through that. Do that right now. Get her out, put her flat on her back. Let me know when it's done. All right. Oh, <laughs> 
the door. Okay, they're they're gonna help you now. Okay, Philip, you did an excellent job. Okay. Okay, so you can hang up with me now. They will help you. The call, which lasted approximately nine and a half minutes, mostly consisted of the 911 operator trying to walk Philip through getting his wife out of the tub and then, when he was unsuccessful, getting him to perform CPR while she was still in the tub. However, when the emergency services arrived, the tub was still full of water. Philip had not pulled the plug, even though the 911 operator had mentioned this to him earlier. Carissa was born in the Philippines and moved to Toronto in 1994 with her family. She was a driven, hard worker and graduated from the University of Toronto in 2007 with honors, marrying Philip the next year in 2008. At the time of her death, she was working as a casualty underwriter. At first glance, Carissa's death seemed to be a tragic accident and nothing more. However, during her autopsy, the drug lorazepam, brand name Ativan, was found in her system. Lorazepam is a sedative in the benzodiazepine family and is used to treat seizures and anxiety. Three days before her death, she had gone to the hospital because she felt confused, sleepy, and disoriented. At that time, they had done a blood draw and found lorazepam in her blood, but it wasn't clear why this was, as Carissa had not been prescribed the drug for any reason. Of course, this pointed investigators to Philip, He had recently resigned as pastor of Ennendale Road Baptist Church and was now a nurse at a long-term home for senior citizens. Naturally, as part of his job, he had access to multiple drugs, including lorazepam. Additionally, investigators discovered that Philip had researched suspicious phrases, searching online for, would 100 milligrams of Ativan be fatal, as well as toxicology and autopsy. Investigators also soon discovered that the reason Philip stepped down as pastor was because he had had an affair with one of his parishioners, a young woman who was also a friend of his wife's. Carissa had discovered the affair along with a wealth of pornography that Philip had been viewing on his computer. He and Carissa had attended marriage counseling where he agreed to end his affair and to add a filter to the home computer that prevented him from being able to view pornography. In fact, he had not ended the affair, and the computer filter was removed shortly before he called 911 to report his wife's death, when he should have been out running, according to his own version of events. Philip Grandine was arrested six months after his wife's death and placed under house arrest in his parents' home. Justice was dragged out for many years as Philip fought to stay out on bail and then appealed his first manslaughter conviction. He was convicted of manslaughter rather than murder, as though it seemed clear he had supplied the drugs to his wife in some way. It could not be proven that he did so with the intent of her death. Following his appeal, Philip was convicted of manslaughter a second time in 2019, and in 2020 he was finally sentenced to only 15 years in prison. He again immediately appealed. Carissa's mother read a victim impact statement in 2009 at Philip's second trial. She said, quote, This lawlessness was done first of all against God, against Carissa, their unborn baby, and the rest of society. There must be a judgment for this heinous act as my daughter cries out for justice from her grave. She also said she had spoken to Carissa just hours before her death. 
It was one of those usual mother-daughter phone calls. Just before we ended the conversation, I remember her saying, I love you, mom. How was I to know that would be the last time I was hearing her voice? Carissa's father, who still lived in the Philippines, wrote a victim impact statement that was read aloud in court by the prosecutor. He traveled to Toronto for her funeral and was ill on the flight. As the plane landed, his blood pressure skyrocketed and he had to be rushed to the hospital. He begged to be released so he could attend his daughter's funeral, and it was only later that he found out he had suffered two strokes upon his arrival in Toronto. Carissa was a loving and giving woman. Her mother said she had a forgiving heart as she even forgave the woman who had an illicit relationship with her husband, who had been a friend to them and a member of their congregation. It had taken 10 years for Carissa's family to see justice for the woman they loved. Sadly, Carissa was not the only woman to suffer such a fate. On Tuesday, November 1st, 1994, lust and a covetous nature yet again led to the demise of another bright and loving wife. Carol Newlander, age 52, was the wife of Rabbi Fred Newlander. The Newlanders lived in a two-story colonial in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, had three grown children, and had been married for 29 years at the time of Carol's death. Carol, although committed to her faith, was not a traditional rabbi's wife and was a successful businesswoman in her own right. In 1982, she opened the Classic Cake Company, a kosher bakery known for gourmet cakes and pastries. She had opened two locations that year, one in the Eagle Plaza Shopping Center and another in Audubon. She sold the business about four years before she died, but still managed the stores. In 1974, Rabbi Newlander had founded the congregation Makor Shalom in Cherry Hill. This temple had become one of the largest in southern New Jersey by the time of his wife's death in 1994. On the surface, Fred Newlander was a respected rabbi, loving father, and a devoted husband. But as they say, appearances can be deceiving. At the time of Carol's murder, Fred was embroiled in a torrid love affair with a Philadelphia radio personality. At that point, the affair had been going on for two years, and Fred had no intention of ending it. However, his lover, Elaine, was tired of hiding and sneaking around, and told him, If you cannot leave your wife, I will leave you. Elaine and Fred met in December 1992, when her husband was dying. Fred visited Elaine's husband in the hospital, then officiated at his burial on December 13, 1992. Before leaving the cemetery, Fred asked Elaine if he could call her. She agreed, and Fred called her that night, then called again a few days later to ask Elaine to lunch. On December 21, 1992, Fred visited Elaine's home for lunch and stayed for a few hours asking Elaine if he could kiss her before he left, and she agreed. Three days later, he went to her home again, and they started to engage in a sexual relationship. Her husband had only been buried for 11 days. Before long, the two were seeing each other every day and engaging in sex almost as often. Elaine would often visit Fred in his office, which had a deadbolt, and they would have sex in his office at the temple. When he visited Elaine's house, he would hide his car in her garage, because he had a clergy sticker on the back and did not want to risk their discovery. In March 1994, Elaine converted to Judaism and became a member of Fred's congregation. 
However, she dated other men, which he did not like. By the summer of that year, Elaine gave Fred the ultimatum that he needed to leave Carol by the end of December, or she would move on to a new life for good. Fred begged her to stay, possibly considering her large salary as a popular radio personality and the $1 million that her husband had left her as good reasons to maintain their relationship. Whatever his real intentions, he told Elaine to hang in there and that he would be with her by her birthday, December 17th, 1994. Meanwhile, there was another important individual in Fred's life, Leonard Jenoff, a 47-year-old recovering alcoholic who had recently separated from his wife, sought counseling, and met Fred. Leonard's house had gone into foreclosure and his request for assistance had been denied by the Jewish Family Services. When he met Fred, Leonard regaled him with stories about having worked for the Baltimore Police Department and the Central Intelligence Agency. He also told Fred that he had been involved with the Iran-Contra affair and was an expert in debugging countermeasures. The pair continued meeting, and Leonard eventually began attending Friday night services upon Fred's invitation. Leonard described Fred as his mentor, his friend, and his rabbi. In March 1994, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings began at the McCor Shalom every Tuesday night from 7 to 8 p.m. Leonard arrived early to these meetings around 5 p.m., to set up and then to visit with Fred. They would walk around the parking lot together discussing many topics, including Leonard's desire to work for the Mossad, the Israeli version of the CIA. It wasn't long before Leonard considered Fred the most important person in his life, second only to his own son. Leonard thanked Fred for all he did for him, and Fred replied, Maybe someday you could do a favor for me. Around this time, Fred also asked Leonard if he would kill for the state of Israel, and Leonard replied in the affirmative. In late April 1994, Fred once again broached the topic, telling Leonard that a great enemy of the Israeli state lived in Cherry Hill. A week later, Fred brought the conversation back around to this enemy and asked Leonard if he was man enough to kill them. He was very intense throughout this conversation, grabbing Leonard's elbow and asking, Am I talking to the right person? And although he was frightened, Leonard responded, Yes, Rabbi. Fred then drove Leonard to the house he shared with Carol and told him that the enemy of the Israeli state was Carol. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Subsequent conversations between Fred and Leonard were discussions about how to kill Carol. Leonard would later testify that he was scared he would lose his relationship with Fred if he told him no. For his part, Fred just told Leonard he wanted to come home one night to find his wife dead. In return, he agreed to pay Leonard $30,000 to get him a job with the Mossad. Various times, locations, and methods were discussed and ultimately ruled out. For example, One suggestion was that Carol would be shot to death and Fred wounded outside of a theater in New York City. Another idea was to kill Carol in the parking lot of the Short Hills Mall, or shooting her in Camden where she attended community service meetings twice a month. In early June 1994, Fred decided the murder should take place in their home on a Tuesday night. He reasoned that he could be at the synagogue which would provide him with an alibi. Additionally, Fred and Carol's son Matthew, who was a full-time medical student during the day and a part-time EMT, worked on Tuesdays and therefore would be out of the house. Fred wanted her killed immediately, but they decided to wait until the fall when it would get dark earlier. In late summer, Leonard suggested that he find another person to help him carry out the killing. Fred said Leonard would have to pay this person a cut from his $30,000. Leonard agreed and asked his 21-year-old roommate, Paul Daniels, to help. Paul was an addict who was also on medication for psychiatric issues, and when Leonard offered him $7,500 to help him, Paul agreed without asking any questions. In late September or early October, Fred met with Leonard in the parking lot of the Cherry Hill Sheraton Hotel. Fred handed him an envelope containing $7,500 in cash and told him it was the first down payment for killing my wife. Leonard divided the money equally and put half in a brown paper bag that he later gave to Paul. When he did, Paul jumped out of his chair shouting, The bitch is dead. The motherfucker is serious about killing his wife. Fred later provided Leonard with a hand-drawn map of the interior of his home with instructions to make the murder look like a robbery. He explained that Carol carried a burgundy purse which would be holding the daily cash take from her business, the classic cake company. Fred said to take the purse but leave her diamond ring. Fred did not want the house ransacked, didn't want Leonard or Paul upstairs, and did not want any damage to the furniture. His last instruction was, make sure when I come home, I find her dead. On October 25th, Fred replaced the light bulb on the front porch with a dead bulb so it would be dark. About 5.30 p.m. that evening, Leonard went to the AA meeting at Makor Shalom and let the rabbi know everything was ready for that night. Around 8 o'clock, Leonard and Paul drove to the Newlanders' home, both dressed in dark clothes with a lead pipe to use in their assault and carrying an envelope as an excuse for going to the house. When they arrived, Carol was in the car, talking on the phone. Leonard knocked on the window, and when Carol rolled down the window, he told her he had a package for the rabbi. She explained Fred wasn't home, but invited Leonard to follow her into the house. Once inside, 
Leonard could not find the burgundy purse, so he asked to use the bathroom so he could use the time to try and find it. After a quick look around, he allegedly knew he could not go through with killing Carol because he couldn't find the purse. He left the envelope with Carol, who invited him to wait for the rabbi, but Leonard left in a hurry. The next day, Fred once again met with Leonard in the Sheraton parking lot, this time furious. He grabbed Leonard by the collar and screamed at him, What the fuck happened? Leonard explained he couldn't find the purse, and that caused him to chicken out. Fred continued to scream at Leonard that he had paid him to kill his wife, and he, quote, Better fucking kill her next Tuesday or I'll kill you, and if you don't believe me, test me. The next Tuesday, November 1st, followed the same pattern. Leonard went to his AA meeting and told Fred, It will be tonight. Fred went home around 6 o'clock to have pizza with his son Matthew, before Matthew began his 12-hour shift. Matthew was quizzing his father about the fight Fred and Carol had on Sunday night, during which Fred had told Carol, it's over. But when Matthew asked him to give him more details, Fred clammed up. After dinner, Fred returned to the synagogue where he remained until 9 p.m. He attended a confirmation class which, according to the rabbi teaching it, was unusual as Fred rarely attended his confirmation classes. According to the same person, Fred was unusually boisterous that night. He also visited choir practice, which was unusual as well. In the meantime, Leonard had finished with the AA class and met with Paul in the parking lot of a clover store, then drove to the rabbi's house. Leonard hid the lead pipe and told Paul that he had to hit Carol too, so they were in it together. Carol was again on the phone with her daughter Rebecca when Leonard and Paul knocked on the front door again. Carol told Rebecca, it's the bathroom guy, and Rebecca said, again, before Carol hung up. After Carol finished her call, Leonard followed her and put his left hand on her shoulder, so she could not turn around. With his right hand, he took the lead pipe and struck Carol in the head. Carol's knees buckled and she cried, why, why? Paul entered the house and took the lead pipe from Leonard and repeatedly struck Carol in the head. While he was attacking Carol, Leonard searched for the burgundy purse. Once he found it, he walked back into the living room and found Carol bleeding from the eyes, ears, and nose. She was making a hissing and gurgling noise as the pair left. Leonard put the weapon and their bloody clothes in a duffel bag, which he disposed of in a dumpster near the Cherry Hill Mall. After removing $125 from the burgundy purse, he drove to Philadelphia and left the purse in a different dumpster. Fred had contacted someone else about a contract killing before he settled on Leonard and Paul. During a racquetball game with his close friend, Myron Peppy Levin, Peppy asked him what was wrong, and Fred threw down his racket and said he wished that he could come home to find my wife dead, spread out on the floor. Peppy told him that he had a wonderful wife and that he was crazy. Fred asked Peppy, who had served time in a federal prison, if he knew anyone who could do it. Peppy told him, ain't no way, leave me alone. When the two left the gym, Peppy told his driver about the conversation, which left his driver awestruck and silent. Despite his misgivings about this, Peppy denied the conversation to police investigators several times until he realized Fred was conning him out of seventeen dollars to $18,000. 
Fred had arranged to purchase a Torah from Warsaw, Poland, with $20,000 Pepe had given him. But Pepe later found out that the Torah only cost two to $3,000. It was only at this point that Pepe admitted to investigators that the conversation about killing Carol had taken place. When Fred returned home on the night of November 1st, he found two drops of blood in the hallway just beyond the front door. When he walked into the living room, he found Carol lying in a pool of blood on the floor, with defensive wounds where she had tried to protect herself. Fred called 911 and said, I, I, uh, I just came home and my wife is on the living room floor and there's blood all over. I, I don't know what to do. There's blood over everything. The first officer arrived at the residence around 9.30 p.m. The Newlander's son, Matthew, also heard the call requesting an ambulance at his house to assist a bleeding victim. He drove the ambulance to the house and ran up the driveway to see what was going on inside. He ran directly past his father, who did not try to stop him or to speak to him. Just before he got inside, two of his colleagues stopped him and carried him back to the ambulance. Matthew later testified that his father was neatly dressed in a suit, was unemotional and just kept saying, Everything is going to be okay. Matthew and Rebecca would both testify that Fred later told both of them of his multiple extramarital affairs and that he was in a long-term affair at the time of Carol's death. He told Matthew that Carol had agreed to allow him to seek gratification outside of their marriage because he and mom were sexually incompatible. After Leonard had done the work, Fred told him he wouldn't be able to pay him directly for carrying out the murder. So, Fred decided to hire Leonard as a private investigator looking into Carol's murder. In this way, Fred was able to pay Leonard varying amounts between March 1995 and October 1998 without suspicion. In 1997, Fred officiated Leonard's wedding. Fred was arrested in September 1998, having long been the primary suspect in the murder, although the case against him in 1998 was primarily circumstantial. It wasn't until 2000 when Leonard decided to confess to his part in the murder that there was an ironclad case against Fred. The only issue with this plan was that Leonard was known for telling huge lies, telling people that he was an FBI agent, close friends with Ronald Reagan, and had been part of the Iran-Contra affair. On May 1st, 2000, Leonard wore a wire while talking to Paul Daniels, For 15 to 20 minutes, Paul just kept saying, shh, don't talk, until he finally confessed. Leonard pleaded guilty to first-degree aggravated manslaughter on June 1st, 2000, and Paul followed suit seven days later. Leonard and Paul testified at Fred's first trial in 2000, which was declared a mistrial due to a hung jury. Fred's second trial in 2002 was held in a different county, and this time he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison. There were additional events worth noting involving some of the players in this case. One of the detectives who had been assigned to interview and then protect Elaine, Fred's lover, ended up dating and later marrying her. He was investigated by internal affairs to ensure this was not a conflict of interest, and the investigation concluded that he had not disseminated information about the Newlander case to Elaine. Leonard has been implicated in another murder, although no charges were ever filed. He was conducting an investigation for a divorce case while working as an investigator for a law firm 
when the estranged wife of their client was murdered and the case has never been solved. Multiple people believe Leonard was involved, but no evidence has surfaced to charge him. At Fred's sentencing hearing, letters written by Carol's loved ones were read. Their son Matthew, by then a doctor and a father, asked the court to protect his children. Like most criminals, he is a coward in word and deed and has refused repeatedly to confront me like a man. It is with the physical and emotional welfare of my children in mind that I request that the court permanently remove this vicious and evil person for their respective futures. A man capable of this fiendish act visited on the woman he wanted to grow old with slowly is clearly capable of any future horror. Rebecca, their daughter, wrote, I hope that the longer he sits in prison, the more he will be haunted by the magnitude of his losses. There are many, and they are painful. I humbly ask the court to make sure he will never forget. One of Carol's brothers, Robert Lids, called Newlander's actions the single most malignant arrogance. He asked for the judge to sentence him to anonymity so that he could suffer his narcissism in silence. But it was perhaps Carol's other brother, Edward, who managed to most aptly summarize Fred's actions and how it made them feel. Before you had Carol killed in the most brutal manner imaginable, and during the ensuing eight years, you acted in a manner so repulsive that words cannot begin to describe the type of person that you became. You are a murderer. You are a liar, a coward, and a cheat. You dishonored Carol, your children, this court, your congregation, the rabbinate, and Judaism. For his part, and probably no surprise to our listeners, Fred continued to maintain his innocence during that hearing. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter at truecrime underscore cases, facebook.com slash truecrimecases with Lainey, and Instagram at truecrimecases with Lainey. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com. And of course, we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. So send us an email at tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, with content editing by Jesse Hawk. Audio engineering provided by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. <laughs>